Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 112, Continuous Improvement and Your Legacy with Jan Freed. Have you ever thought about your legacy? Jan Freed says that whether we think about it or not, we are creating our legacies every day. She has written a book about creating and leaving behind a powerful and meaningful legacy and joined me at the Edges of Lean to help all of us be more intentional about the legacies we are creating. Her new book is Breadcrumb Legacy. Jan Freed, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thank you. I'm honored to be here, Bella. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hey, Jan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and especially a little of your life story? How did you get to do what you're doing today? Well, I call myself a recovering academic. I spent my first career uh, teaching at a small liberal arts college in Iowa. I taught business management and leadership, some marketing. Um, I say I only did that for 30 years. But I left because I wanted to do something else before it was too late to do it. And so I now am a leadership development consultant. I do uh, coaching, speaking, workshops. I've written several books, a couple books on continuous improvement in higher education. Um, and I'll be, we'll be talking about my other two books on leadership. Uh, I'm also certified as a saging leader, saging S-A-G-E-I-N-G through Saging International. And this is all about conscious aging, positive aging. Um, and I just find it fascinating. I kind of jumped into this, oh, about 2008, as baby boomers were starting to leave the workplace. And now we're, you know, they're leaving the workplace in droves, you know. And so that's another area that that I find fascinating. So I would say that... Um, you know, I'm very excited about what I do to help people improve. Well, was there a moment that where you said, oh, I have to leave academia. I'm I'm done with this. I, I'm ready to move on to something else. Or was it something that happened gradually? I would say it happened gradually. The more I got into, the more I got into saging work or, or conscious aging, the more I realized you know, we're all aging, we're all getting older. Uh, wisdom doesn't naturally come, we have to work at that. And for me, the major uh, decision point, I think I would say is, <clears throat> I had to drive an hour each way to get to my job. And so when I say an hour, I mean, I'm driving 100 miles a day. And when my, I have three grown sons, and when they were seniors in college, I have twins, and when they were seniors, you know, uh, all my kids were going to be done with college. And my husband and I thought, you know, it's if I'm going to take a risk, now's the time to do it. And so I just kind of naturally transitioned into more of this uh, consulting leadership work, where now I don't have to commute uh, 100 miles a day, and I don't have to grade papers every weekend. Although I did teach a graduate course, graduate leadership course for the University of Iowa for 10 years. Um, but COVID, after COVID, you know, um, a lot of those courses, they were elective and they they just got dropped because colleges are now trying to, you know, cut budget. So 
Um, I think it was a gradual transition. I was thinking about it for a long time. It's very hard to leave a tenured position. I had an endowed chair, mm -hmm. which I was honored to hold. Um, you know, it's a very secure job. And I loved it. I loved it once I got there. But um, so anyway, that's my story. That's Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so I'd love to hear more about the saging leadership. And, and it's just fascinating to me because one of the things that, you know, is obvious to a lot of us, especially to women, is we're actually not supposed to get old, right? That we have to, we have, we're supposed to be as young as possible for as long as possible. Right. Um, but, it, but as you say, you know, it's happening to everybody. We're all getting older. We're getting more experiences. Our, our lives are changing. Our families are changing. You know, all of that's happening. Um what how did you discover that and and what really grabbed you when you yeah. well, when you started true. to learn about it i uh in 1992 i met a professor at the university of illinois chicago and he changed my life dr uh burak elmer burak and he changed my life and he would you know he became a professional mentor and he said to me Jan, check into this organization. And at that time, it was called uh, the Saging Guild. But they've recently changed their name, Saging International. And for your listeners, I would encourage them to go to sage-ing.org. And that's the website. Um, it really changed my life. And he said, Jan, baby boomers are not going to know what to do with themselves. There are going to be all kinds of opportunities for consulting work and writing work. Uh, because of this new movement. So I got involved. I became certified as what they call a saging leader. And I have just enjoyed the people. I've enjoyed the organization. I've learned a lot. And it's all about life. You know, um, we say embrace aging because you're right. The society wants, you know, the focus is on anti-aging. And uh, when yeah. you embrace aging, then you're really embracing your whole life experience and what you've learned in it. Um, and so uh, it's fascinating. I also, I don't know, another source that I would encourage your listeners to check out would be the Modern Elder Academy. We call it MEA, but it was started by Chip Conley. And Chip actually wrote the forward to my latest book, Breadcrumb Legacy. And the Modern Elder Academy, they have two campuses now, two main campuses. One's in Baja, California or Mexico and uh, Baja, Mexico. And the other is just opened in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so I attended uh, MEA. And again, Chip Conley has a great daily uh, blog post that he calls Wisdom Well. And I would encourage your listeners to check that out too. It's just really changed my life because again, it, it's a lot of wasted energy to fight aging, but it's positive energy if you embrace aging. And so that could be a whole podcast, Bella. <laughs> Just on its own, but we want to talk about your book as well, your, your latest book, which is yeah. Breadcrumb Legacy. But that's tied into, um, you know, positive aging and embracing yeah. your aging, right? So, so I, one of the things that I say to potential clients when they're trying to decide whether to engage in a project or not, is I ask the question, what do you want your legacy to be? And I gotta say, people are often stumped by that question. Yes. Okay. Um they, they don't know what they want the, the legacy to be. 
Okay. So, um, uh, tell us about tell us okay. about this. What is it? What is the breadcrumb legacy? And okay. and uh, what is your book about? Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you how it evolved because again, it you know it it was a gradual process. It didn't happen overnight. I had I started a book. Oh gosh, I started it in. Uh, I started research. I didn't know if it was going to be a book, but I started research in 2004, and uh, that research. Out of that research, I was still full-time teaching. I developed a leadership course out of that research. And then when I left my full-time teaching job, I really had time to dive into that book. And I call, that book is called Leading with Wisdom, Sage Advice from 100 Experts. And I interviewed some of the top thought leaders in the field of uh, leadership. I was able to, some of these people are no longer living, but I was able to interview Warren Bennis, Margaret Wheatley, uh, Sally Helgeson, Parker Palmer. I mean, the list goes on. Marshall Goldsmith. And so the wow. and out of those interviews, I actually interviewed more than 100 people, but my editor liked 100. And out of those uh, interviews then came this book, Leading with Wisdom. And each chapter became a, um, was one of the themes that emerged from the research, uh, qualitative research. And one of the themes that emerged was leaders live their legacy. And out of that book, I started doing workshops. And one of the workshops I had, uh, I titled Lead, uh, Leadership Legacy, how to, lead, how to Live Your Leadership Legacy. And I would ask leaders, you know, when do you leave your legacy? And people would say, well, when we leave, I'd say, well, we'll leave what? Well, when we leave a job, when we retire, yes. When we die, mm -hmm. when we leave the earth. And I'd say, yes. And I said, well, what about when I leave this workshop? What about, you know, when I leave this speaking engagement? What about when I leave a meeting? When you leave a meeting, we are leaving our legacy all the time, daily. So when people say they don't know what their legacy is or what they want their legacy to be, they already have a legacy. Now they may like it or not, but we are leaving it all the time. And so um, out of that kind of experience, then I decided I'm gonna do more of a deep dive into legacy. So then I went back on the journey of interviewing more people, some of the same people, but some new people, thought leaders in the work of legacy, because legacy work is one of the main pillars of becoming a sage. And I ha actually have a podcast called Becoming a Sage. And um, and that can be found on my website, which is just janfreed.com, two N's and two E's. So mm. um, I interview people about wisdom, wisdom about work wisdom, life wisdom. And so out of those interviews, so I started interviewing. So Leading with Wisdom was published in 2013. And then um, I would say about... 2017, 2018, I started doing more interviews, interviewing people. And then with COVID, I call Breadcrumb Legacy book, I call that my COVID book, because, you know, a lot of the work, well, the workshops of speaking, a lot of my work just halted as it did. Uh -huh. for me. And so I just dove, you know, I went headfirst into this research and so Breadcrumb Legacy, How Great Leaders Live a Life Worth Remembering was published by Rutledge just this past January, 2023. 
And so um, what's interesting is breadcrumb legacy is all about, you know, it's what, what really, what are the components of living a life worth remembering? And I constantly emphasize the fact that, you know, we are leaving our legacy in bit size, bite-sized pieces in breadcrumbs every day and they accumulate. Um, and a legacy can be good, it can be bad, and it can be lost overnight. But when we think, like I was doing a workshop recently where I had a leader ask me, he said, well, he didn't really ask, well, I guess he did ask me, he made a comment and then he asked, he said, he said, well, don't you find thinking about your legacy on a daily basis, don't you find that self-centered? Isn't that, you know, thinking about yourself too much? And I said, well, Let's replace the word legacy with impact or influence. You know, mm. what kind of impact are you having on others on a daily basis? What kind of influence? And when you look at it like that, I don't think that's self-centered because we are impacting others and it may not be positive. So I look at breadcrumb legacy as kind of a moral compass to keep us, you know, on the right path so that we think before we speak or that we think before we act, that we really are thinking about the impact we are having on others. So it's not about the giant thing that you did. It's not about, you know, no. Andrew Carnegie's libraries. No, no. Type type but, of thing. As 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 no, it could be, right? But it, it could but be. it's it but it's be. about yeah, it's it moments. Be, yes, it's about moments. It's about living. It's about how are you living your life on a daily basis? And um, they these breadcrumbs do accumulate. So in the end, it could be something big. Like, oh, I was reading something the other day where I can't remember where this was, but um, it was in the New York Times where this uh, man on the East Coast in a town of about 5,000 um, lived in a trailer uh, people knew him, but he really, a lot of people didn't know what he did, but people knew him. And he had a friend, if I remember right, this was just about a week ago. Um, yeah. who I, years I think ago, I saw this, yeah. Yeah, who years ago said, and this person, this man had no um, family members. I, I can't remember, he might've been divorced, but I don't think he had children. And so he didn't have family members. And his friend said, well, why don't you leave your you know, assets. And, and the friend didn't know how many assets he had, but he said, why don't you leave it to something that you believe in? You know, because, you know, in the end, we're all, we're not going to live forever. And when he died, it was something like $3 million. And he left it all to this town. And, and the town was, first of all, they were all shocked. They had no idea he had those kinds of assets. And then secondly, they were saying how it's going to enable them to do all kinds of big things, big projects, that they, you know, before he left the money, they were only dreams. So, you know, again, you never, you never know. And, and that clearly that man accumulated, um, uh, you know, and it adds up compound, you know, the whole idea of compounding your money. Yeah. Yeah. But you're talking about compound interest on your actions and how you make people feel and yeah, how, how you lead. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep, I am. Yep, you're so exactly can right. Can you give us an example, Jen, of, of something okay. that um in, in a, a, a breadcrumb legacy the leader has has uh, created? Okay. Well, uh 
you know, I think any kind of small action that kind of makes a big impact. Okay. Um, and, and I will say that in my book, Breadcrumb Legacy, at the end of each chapter, I have what I call breadcrumb ingredients for yeah. implementing the chapter concepts. Okay. So the chapter headings, you know, I have, a, I have the one chapters on relationships, another chapters on death. I will say that um, I've, I've been able, I've been fortunate to have two TEDx talks and they can be found on YouTube. One's called Embracing Death and the other one's called Becoming a Nobody. And so one chapter in the book's on death and another chapter, Becoming a Nobody is all about ego, controlling your ego, because so much of bad behavior is when the ego takes over. So, but I'll just give you a personal example. Um about how I, how I left a breadcrumb legacy, you know, or, or one of my small actions. So when I knew that I was going to be leaving my full-time teaching job, I had been there 34 years. That was more than half of my life at the time. And um, it was really my family and it was going to be very difficult. And so a couple months before I announced that I was going to be leaving, um, I had a professional conference in Chicago and I mentioned I'm in Iowa and um, I intentionally, I mean, a, a, another word that comes up that I use a lot with breadcrumb legacy is being intentional, being intentional, being conscious about what you're doing. So I had a conference in Chicago and um, I was actually president of the organization at that time, which means that they would pay for all my expenses. But I decided I would rather take, we, we have a mega, I don't know if it's still in operation actually, but we had a mega bus. So it was- Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, it was a direct a direct route from- A dollar each way or something? Yeah, yeah. So, well, at the time, truly, it was like, I, I don't know, I think round trip cost me less than $20. And I'm not uh -huh. even sure if it's still in operation, but you know, it was a direct from Des Moines to Chicago. And honestly, even though- only takes an hour to fly. You have to get to the airport early, you know, the air, then when uh -huh. you get to the airport, you know, it takes like an hour or more to get from O'Hare to downtown Chicago, where this, the bus would drop me off right almost in front of my hotel. I didn't even need a taxi. So I intentionally took the bus because I wanted to work on a project. And anymore, when you're flying, you're so crammed into these seats that, uh -huh. you know, so I was able to spread out in this bus and my project was one of my hobbies is I make postcards and on postcards, I have like quotes of others, some of my quotes, you know, some of the quotes are like, and, and some statement cards. Um, and so I took a variety of my postcards and I took the staff directory from my college and I intentionally wrote thank you notes to people for specific things that they have helped me with, okay? And I think I wrote 110 thank you notes uh, going to and from Chicago. And then when I got back, you know, I didn't mention I was leaving. I didn't, I just wanted to say, oh, you know, thank. I just wanted to thank you for this. Or, you know, when you did that for me, that really meant a lot or saved me a lot of time. <clears throat> and then when I got back, we have what we call, you know, campus mail, you know, where it doesn't cost you, you just drop it and then, 
<clears throat> so everything's delivered on campus free. So I delivered all these notes. All right. And, um, you know, people were thanking me right and left. I only had one person say to me, are you okay? Is everything okay? You know, kind of ah. like dying. Right. And I said, no, everything's fine. I just want to thank you, you know? And so I was getting all kinds of nice. And then it was a about a month, month and a half later that I announced that I was leaving. And then people were coming up to me. Now I get it. Now I understand. But I wanted to thank people for what they had done without them knowing I was leaving. Okay. Mm. And, you know, I, and I wanted that to be part of my legacy. I wanted that to be, you know, I was very intentional about what I said, what I hand wrote all these, you know, and I <clears throat> uh, wanted to be very intentional and I, and I think people still remember that, you know? So, um, and whether they do or they don't, it doesn't matter. That was part of what I wanted to leave. It, it made, it, and it also made letting go easier because it was very <clears throat> emotional for me to leave. <clears throat> and it was risky. And I was leaving people that were like part of my family. But, um, mm. but anyway, so that's an example. That's a beautiful example. And I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about gratitude, right? And, and uh, being, um, being grateful and yeah. being grateful, you know, for the people in our lives and, yes. and how they connect to us and support us and hold us up. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, that is a, just a beautiful deliberate act of gratitude. And what I love about that, Jan, is, as you said, you don't know if people remember it or they don't remember it, if they connect it to you leaving or if they don't connect it to you leaving. But what I can see that's done for you is, is it's, it's given you the opportunity to express that to people. And that is is good for you. That's healthy for you to be able to, Absolutely. to yeah. have done that. Yeah, that's a good way to connect the dots, Bella. Yes, thank you. And I will say, you know, the book is full of all kinds of examples. So I, when I was interviewing people, I would probe them for examples. So the book's full of, uh, you know, totally very practical, full of examples. I, I want to connect this for a minute to, to lean into continuous improvement work, because we talk about right. in lean, we talk about leader standard work. And so these are things that leaders um, develop as a result of understanding what their organization needs, where they need to be, who they need to talk to, how they need to get um, information to and from the organization. And it seems to me that when a leader has a, a good standard work that that helps them, you know, connect with the people in the organization, helps them hear what's happening in the organization, helps them provide strategic goals to the organization in a way that the organization understands them and is able to act on them. That's creating a legacy, right? It's not, it's not what they it's not what they do on the last day. It's what they're doing every day that that they are actually practicing their standard work or when they decide that they need to change their standard work because some situation in the organization has changed so when, so that eventually well you know if they do leave the people will 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 look back and say oh yeah you know i remember that and i understand how that impacted the organization, which then gives them as the next generation of leaders, the opportunity to do something similar or something even, even better. So that, 
by doing that, by leaving those little breadcrumbs that this is how I behave, this is what I do, you're actually building the next generation of leaders. If, as you say, they're good breadcrumbs, right? Right. They have to be good breadcrumbs. But you're absolutely right. You know, what trail are you leaving behind? And is it positive? Is it negative? And, you know, it's not just what you do, but it's how you do it and how you communicate Mm. and what you're saying and what you're doing. Um, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so can we talk a little bit more about that, about, about the how? Sure. Well, yeah, one so thing, I, I go ahead. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I mentioned earlier that I've written a couple books and, and co-authored a couple books on continuous mm-hmm. improvement in higher education. I've written several articles and I used to say that, you know, continuous improvement organizations don't improve unless people improve because organizations are just groups of people. So really, uh-huh. continuous improvement is all about uh, people improving, in either improving how they work, how they work together. You know, again, concepts in continuous improvement that are important are things such as systems thinking, you know, how are we working together? And how is the system working? And, you know, is it as efficient as possible? And um, how can we make it more efficient? But it's all just all about people. And so what's important, I think, in continuous improvement work is to really focus on the mindset and helping people understand that quality really is personal, that, you know, how can we look at a better way to do things? Um, And in fact, you know, when I was involved in continuous improvement work, you know, then continuous, you know, people think, well, it's the flavor of the day, you know, it's the fad of the Mm. month. You know, and I would say, well, you know, let's not use again, people would say, I don't like the concept of CQI or, you know, QI or whatever you want to call it. I'd say, well, the initials, initials of the day, right? Yeah. Initials of the day or lean or, you know, let's just call it getting better. Is there a better way to do this? You know, how can you argue with getting better? What is wrong with him getting better, you know, getting better as a person, improving the system, you know, making it better for, you know, end users, you know, how how can you argue with that? And so to me, continuous improvement, really, I like to emphasize um, the human aspect because, you know, there are people all along the way. In fact, I don't know if this was Deming or, you know, but the famous quote where, you know, Usually people, people are not bad. People are stuck in bad systems. So how can you improve the system and so that people can function in a better or healthier way? So that's how I tend to look at it. In fact, you know, I focused on higher education and I used to say that, you know, we, you know, we're, we're supposed to be institutions of higher learning. So we need to be a learning organization. And the only way to become a learning organization is to help people learn how to work better together. So anyway, that's, that's so kind of interesting. My, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I think that's really interesting, Jen. I mean, listeners to the podcast know that I came out of um, the pharmaceutical industry, which is loaded with scientism. And so one of the things that was always fascinating to me was that as soon as you took a scientist out of the lab, they would forget how to do science. So they would forget how to experiment to try to make things better. They would they were right. su- suddenly shifted into the idea that, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. And we're just going to do it this way without understanding that it might have ramifications. That right. Things are connected to other things and, and people might not respond the way you expect them to respond, which are all things that we know how to do 
in science, quote unquote, but we we don't know how to do once we're outside of the lab. And it's, it sounds it's so fascinating to me that you say this about academia, that it's all about learning, right? So in the classroom or in the lab, it's about learning and how do the students learn and understand, you know, different styles of pedagogy and so on and so forth. But it's really hard, and I've heard this from other people in academia, it's really hard to do learning as an organization, to be a learning organization, learning how to improve. And I think, and I'd love to know what you think about this, I think it's because ego gets in the way. I think Um, you are absolutely right. Nope. And that's why my chapter is called Becoming a Nobody. But that's why, you know, um, the ego, unless you learn to control the ego, a lot of your breadcrumbs probably are not very positive. <laughs> and you know, one thing about uh, higher education, even though the focus is learning, faculty members in general don't like feedback. <laughs> I mean, I'm generalizing, but faculty mm. members are not very so. good about, you know, performance appraisals or getting, you know, faculty evaluations or, you know, a lot of faculty members are not open to, they're not very accepting of feedback where I believe I'm, you know, I would constantly have feedback mechanisms. Once students knew that there were no repercussions, like I really want to make this course the best course for them, they would give me all kinds of feedback and you just have to really listen and be open to listening. And most of the time it's not threatening. They have good ideas. Like, have you ever thought about organizing the classroom this way? Or, you know, so, but faculty, a lot of faculty are pretty close to feedback. So that's a tough one. That's so interesting. I often, yeah, I I, I wonder um, if it has, that has to do with the preparation, you know, to, to, you know, going through the you know what it takes to earn a master's degree and and uh, get a PhD and defend a dissertation. It's all about it is all about defense as opposed yes. to being to being open. Um, that that's a whole other podcast about. Yeah, that's how another we, podcast. How could, how yeah. could we train PhDs without right. without um, making them so defensive? Right. But that's um, that's that's a, that's probably another story because because this issue of of ego, Jan. It doesn't matter whether you're in pharmaceutical company or you're in a university or you're you know in a company that's making automobiles or you're in a nonprofit organization um the the way that we want to defend ourselves from getting feedback and changing things that's that's universal i think that's universal across um yeah. all of these I think I can speak to higher education the best, but, you know, once, like you said, the training and the PhD, you know, a lot of faculty members, and I learned this from our research that, um, you know, they don't like to look at students as customers. Okay. They don't like, because what are the, these, these students can't possibly tell me, you know, how to improve. Well, they certainly can. They can talk about the learning environment. They can talk about, um, uh, you know, how to make it better for them. And, um, and I think we need to be open to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe they can't tell you the content, you know, how to, but maybe <clears throat> the content, how to make the content better, but the delivery of the content, the environment in which the content's being delivered, 
the tone of the content. I mean, they certainly can give you feedback as to what might make it better for them. And what I would always find interesting when I, because I also wrote a book, co-authored a book on, um, it's called Shifting the Focus from Teaching to Learning. And I wrote that with Mary Huba, uh, college assessment, assessment on college campuses. Um, and we have, in that book, we published feedback mechanisms. But what I would find interesting is I would give the same, using the same feedback tool to two different classes of the same content, same subject, but two different sections. And I would get different, I would get different feedback from both of them. And so, you know, they're different people. It's a different group of people. And so I think leaders need to constantly be getting feedback. And, and but you don't, feedback's not going to be, your feedback mechanisms are not going to work unless you've created an environment of trust. Unless, you know, because otherwise people are just going to tell you what they want, what they think you want to hear. And that's not going to make anything better. So you have to create this safe environment, which takes time where people really know that, like I would say to the students, you know, I have continuous improvement in my bloodstream. I want to get better. You know, I said, the only thing that would bother me is if you become a complainer. If you've got a complaint, offer a suggestion. So if you come up with solutions or suggestions, I will consider those. But if you're just a complainer, that doesn't help anyone. But if you start with letting people People know that you're open to ideas. Uh-huh. That helps, right? Yeah. Because because if because I think people are tempted to complain if they think that the the professor or the leader or you yeah. know or whoever the person is um, who's who's supposedly in charge is only going to operate based on their own ideas and their own way of working. Then all I can do is complain, right? Right. But if I know that you'd be open to my idea, or even if you know that I'd be op- that you would be open to hearing that um, I have an issue with this. I don't really know what the solution is, but you would be willing to help me work towards a solution. Though th- that would create more trust, and then that's a breadcrumb, right? Creating there that trust. Go. Actually, that's a, that's a whole that's a whole loaf, Jan. Yes, if you can create the trust. That's true. That's true. that's a loaf. That's you gotta. Yeah, that's true. Very true. What's your favorite chapter in in your new book? Well, I don't know if it's my favorite, but what I would say is I think the chapter on ego, becoming a nobody. And as I said, I've got a 12 minute um, TEDx. It it was a virtual TEDx, but on YouTube called uh, Becoming a Nobody. Because the ego, as you said earlier, is so... Uh, can be so damaging. Now we all have to have an ego or we wouldn't be able to stand up. But right. when we need to control the ego and not let the ego control us. And when the ego controls us, then it tends to manifest itself in some really negative behaviors such as micromanaging, defensiveness, over-controlling, jealousy, envy, greed, competitiveness, overly competitive. Um, those negative behaviors, if you're the leader, then you can be creating what we call a toxic environment for others. And so I think that chapter is really an essential chapter to read and understand, because if we don't understand it, 
the ego takes over and, you know, then all of a sudden uh, we've become a toxic leader, maybe without even knowing it. And, and how, so that could even be sort of shed on other people by just some very uh, nuanced things that you say in the way that you say them without mm -hmm. even thinking about how you said them. And so what right. you said earlier about intentionality would also be important, right? Yes, very important, very important. And, you know, I often ask people in workshops uh, or when I'm doing coaching, um, you know, name some leaders, you know, think of some leaders, give me two or three leaders that you found effective, that you really wanted to follow. And then why? And then have them list why. And then I do the opposite you know, two or three leaders that you found ineffective and why and do that. And then I'd say, well, you know, these are all learned behaviors. So you can be more like the leaders that you admire. You know, why not be? And a question that I ask in the book and I like to ask in workshops, would you follow yourself? And mm. to get thinking about wow. what, what kind of leader am I? Would you follow yourself? You know, it's interesting. We can, it, it, sports figures get a lot of visibility. And Bill, uh, Bobby Knight, former coach of the Indiana Hoosiers, just died. And what mm -hmm. was interesting, whether you read his obituary in the New York Times or other articles about him, you know, he was outstanding or, well, he was very successful at what he was effective. Yeah, he was effective, but how he did it and then how he and he fell from grace. So, you know, his obituary, I would say, had just as much negative stuff as it did positive. You know, because he really fell from grace, ended up leaving, didn't walk, didn't step foot on Indiana's campus until towards the very end of his life. I mean, I don't think he stepped foot for I don't know how many years, 20 years or whatever. Um, you know, because he really felt uh, deceived or whatever, but he fell from grace and it finally caught up with him, you know, and the times changed, you know, when he was coaching and he was really out of control, um, you know, the work, how we viewed the workplace and uh, was different, you know, it was different. So, and the same kind of thing happened to, uh, I can't think of his first name, Coach Paterno. Uh, Joe yeah, Paterno. Huh? Joe Paterno. Joe, yeah. Joe. And you're, and you're yeah, from yeah. Pennsylvania. You know, same yeah, thing happened yeah. to him. I mean, you know, very, I was a real Joe Paterno fan. I mean, I was really, you know, and again, he fell from grace. And, uh, you know, it can happen overnight. And so, I, you know, I think regardless of what we did to make us successful, I think we can't stop, we can't stop thinking about the impact on others, you know, and doing the right thing, doing the right thing all the time, not just some of the time. Yeah. All, all the time. And I'm reminded actually, Jan, of one of the very first podcasts I did, which was with um, uh, someone who was a pilot, um, a former military pilot who uh, now flies for a major airline. And I asked him, what do you do when you're flying and it's a beautiful day? And you just up there, it's beautiful. Everything's wonderful and calm. 
And he says, you know, what I'm doing is I'm always scanning the horizon for the little cloud that might be some type of trouble. And I, I that was a very profound thing to say because it's I don't think it's about like looking for trouble, but it's about that awareness of the environment that you're in and not letting your ego become the environment. And I think that's what happened to Bobby Knight and Joe Paterno was that their their ego became the environment that they lived in. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And they didn't didn't see what was happening. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Uh huh. Because our ego wants to protect us. You know, our ego yeah. wants to say you're right, you're not wrong. You know, and you're right. So that that's a good connection, Bella. Yeah. Dan, tell us once again how people can find you. Okay. Well, my website, again, is janfreed.com, two N's and two E's. Uh-huh. I'm active on LinkedIn, so they could find me on LinkedIn. I do have a monthly newsletter and a monthly podcast. So if they go to my website, uh, there's a place to subscribe. Uh, and again, it's just, they would only get, like, they would not get any more than two emails a month, usually one. Um. And uh, I said, I have a monthly podcast and my books can be found on Amazon. You can find out, you can get a 20% discount and there's a discount code on my website. Oh, um, terrific. Yeah. So, I mean, there I can be found lots of ways, but I would say my website and LinkedIn would be the best way. That's great. Hey, Jan, we've been talking about legacy. Yes. And ab- about, about aging. But I want to ask you the question that, you know, I ask everyone, which is what is your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Um, you know, I think that my, my response might would change uh, depending on the times. OK, but I think for right now, I would say to young people, you know, understand that we all have to pay our dues. You know, we all have to do things that we didn't we didn't want to do. We have to start somewhere. And. Um, because of my saging work, I think it's also important to respect your elders. Like, you know, I think it's easy to come out of college or come out of graduate school and think you know everything. And, you know, there's so much to learn. And I would say, look for the people within the organization who have the experience, who have some wisdom, and take them to coffee and, you know, make a coffee date and just you know, ask them for advice. You know, I, I've kind of shifted my thinking based on some research recently that instead of asking for feedback, can you give me some feedback? People are more likely to give you advice. They may not give you honest feedback, but they'll give you honest advice. So what advice would you have for me as I start out in my career in this organization? Or, you know, so I think just realize that we all have to pay our dues. And I also like to remind younger people that your job is to make your boss's job easier. And what, whatever that is, whatever that is, how can you make your boss's job easier? And, and then do that. And then some. Wow. Great advice. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Hey, Jen free. Thank you so much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. I've learned from you, Bella. I've learned from you. Well, I've learned from you. So great conversation. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Jan Fried for being my guest at the Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? 
What legacy are you leaving? We would love to hear from you. You can find Jan at janfried.com or on LinkedIn. Her book is Breadcrumb Legacy. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com where you'll find lots of great new content every week. The Ages of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.